31 through 34. And just, just a reminder, this is the day that we, uh, all the families stay together. There is no children's church. The nursery is open if you need it. You're welcome to, uh, to, to use the nursery. There's a speaker in there so you can hear the, uh, the, the message. But it's, it's good that, I think, it, I think it's good that there is a time where families stay together and, and worship together. I know that it can be a challenge. I know that it can be a trial. But I think it's good that children see their moms and their dads and their families, brothers and sisters, all worshiping um, together. And so on this day, um, we just say, let's gather together. It, is, it will be Communion Sunday. I think it's important that we all gather together and as a church um, partake of the elements, so it's good that we we stay together. And so then, this also means um, we know kids get wiggly, and sometimes kids are vocal, and we celebrate the wiggliness and the vocalness of children because that is an answer to our prayers. So um, when kids get, we pray that we would have kids in our church and and moms and dads. And so you know what, when they when they get vocal, we can say amen. So, I want to begin today with, uh, in, in, our, in the Gospel of Luke. And I just want to read this text because it's such a, a valuable and such an important passage of text um, that I think it's right instead of coming up with some pithy statement or some humorous story to open our, our message today. Perhaps we'll just open with God's holy word. So listen to the word of God. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said." I like this passage of text because it is, um, it's very simple to, I guess, very simple to outline. There's just two really, two really big sections. And the first section is what's going to happen to Jesus in Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, that what is going to happen to Jesus in Jerusalem is going to fulfill Scripture. That's the first part. The second part is the disciples' lack of understanding about what Jesus said. Um, and it's not that they did not understand the words or the syntax or the definitions of the words that Jesus said. They just did not understand how the words that Jesus said were actually going to fulfill Scripture because he's talking about how the Messiah is going to be mocked, killed, beaten, and risen from the dead. And they have to wonder, I don't know how that fulfills Scripture. So those are our two big sections. That what is going to happen to Jesus in Jerusalem fulfills the Scriptures and that the disciples did not understand Jesus' words. We should make sure that we set this in, in its context. This is, continues Jesus, what we are calling the travel narrative, which really began way back in, in chapter 9. And it, it's coming to an end. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. And while it's not completely finished yet, they still have a couple more miles to go. We do see that the travel narrative ends much like it began, with a prediction that Jesus would go to Jerusalem, suffer for the sins of his people, die on a cross, and rise again from the dead. And we see this um, actually be in chapter 9, uh, verses 22, and also verses 44 
and 45. Listen to what Jesus says in those passages of text. Um, But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they may not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So the travel narrative starts with this idea, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to suffer and die. And the disciples say, I don't get what you mean. And then, then he begins to teach them and instruct them in this, in this um, time of traveling to Jerusalem, what it means to be a disciple of Christ, demonstrating the power of God, and that he uh, is truly the Lord of all. And now we ca- are coming to an end of this narrative. And he says the same thing. I'm going to suffer and die. And the disciples say, what? I don't get it. But note, and we'll spend some time with this, it was hidden from them. It was kept from them. So, um, that's just kind of the, the context um, of what we've been looking at. So, um, one of the other things we should consider in regards to the context is that, at least in the immediate context, is that eternal life has been promised. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the, the story of, uh, of um, the rich young ruler, and his question was, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And prior to that, we saw the tax collector and the Pharisee, and Jesus was talking about this man, the, the tax collector, went away vindicated, or he went away saved, and the, the, the rich young ruler says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus, uh, well, you can go back and listen to those, they're on sermon.net slash C-O-R-P, got that little plug in there, so I won't rehash all, all of that. But what has been promised, we need to realize that even though eternal life has been promised, the path to eternal life is through the sufferings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's promised this is how a person is saved, but Jesus is going to provide the means by which that salvation will come. And that's where this um, text rises up. So, one of the things we do when we, uh, when we study a, a text, and, and you know this if you've been in this church for probably more than um, a couple of weeks, um, one of the things you, you want to do when you're studying a passage of text is ask yourself this question. Are there any key words? Are there any key words or phrases that jump out at us that might give us a clue as to what is the, the major emphasis of this passage of text? So we're going to look at this text And I'm going to read it again to you, but I want you to pay attention. So I'm I'm warning you, pay attention because we're going to look for key words or phrases as what might be the the emphasis that Jesus is saying. So I'm going to read it. You need to listen very carefully to, to get this. All right, you ready? Are you listening? Here we go. Pay attention. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See... We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. Did you get it? I know it was subtle, pretty subtle in there. All right. Did you notice the note of certainty? These things are going to happen. All right. There is a note of certainty. So in order, there is the certainty of what, in other words, what is about to happen in Jerusalem must happen. 
And I'll talk a little bit about why it must happen. But in order to secure the salvation that Jesus has spoken of in the previous text, the sacrifice must be made for atonement. It must be made. It must happen. And not only must it happen, it will happen. And we'll see that it will happen because God has decreed that it will happen. So that's kind of our our introduction to this text. Let's look at it a little more closely. And I want to begin with um, looking at Jesus' relationship to the scriptures. And, and I think this is, this is interesting because today we are, we are told or oftentimes taught or influenced by people who say, well, the Bible itself, the ideas are inspired, but not all of the words. The ideas are good. But not everything is inspired. Not all of it is God's word. Some of it is God's word. And then we have all sorts of people who say, well, not all of the, you don't need to listen to the Old Testament. That's all old stuff. That doesn't apply anymore. Or you have people who say, no, only Paul's writings matter. And then you have another person who says, none of Paul's writings matter. Ignore Paul's writing. You got all of this stuff. What is Jesus' understanding of the scriptures? Because I think we should follow along with what Jesus, how Jesus understands the scriptures. And one of the things, so... Jesus is going along, he's traveling to Jerusalem, and now he speaks these words to his disciples. He says, I'm going up to Jerusalem, and what happens there is going to fulfill the scriptures. And I want you to note, take note of this little phrase. See, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So I want to focus on this, that everything that is written by the prophets, and, and, and... I'm just going to, there's a little nuance here, and I hope I don't bore you with, with this, but I find it interesting, so I'm just going to say it, because um, I think it's interesting, but I hope it does, we don't bog down in minutia, but I think it's, it's good, because what was spoken by the prophets is going to be accomplished. That is, what the prophets wrote is going to be accomplished, but we, here's the little thing that we need to understand, and I think the text um, does, does bring out that the prophets are not the originator of the message. In other words, it was written by the prophets, but they are not the originators of the message. They are the instruments of the message. In other words, maybe we could understand this in, in the Greek, this is the word dia, which is often translated through. So it is what is written through the prophets. So the prophets weren't just men. They did not have a message. But God, by the Holy Spirit, spoke through them, and the words that came through them um, must be fulfilled. So they are the instruments. In other words, who is the originator? Where did the message originally come from? It came from God himself. And this is why they will be fulfilled. The scriptures will be fulfilled. Why? Because the message didn't come by prophets. It came through prophets by God. God spoke through the prophets. And this is exactly how we understand the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. um, uh, The inspiration of scriptures. That the Holy Spirit spoke through men, inspired men, that God, the the scriptures are God-breathed, that God breathed his word through men who wrote them down, but God is the author. And Jesus has that view. Jesus understands that the scriptures came through the prophets, but they are not the originators of the message. They are not the ones who invented the message. They did not create the message. They simply wrote what the Holy Spirit was inspiring them to write. 
And so their words concerning the suffering servant did not originate with them. They were the instruments of this revelation. And this is why Jesus says that they must be accomplished because they are not the words of men. These are the words of God and God cannot lie. And so when God speaks, it happens. And when God says the Messiah will go to Jerusalem and die for the sins of the people, Messiah will go to Jerusalem and die for the sins of the people. So God's word is holy inspired. Jesus understands that the scriptures are God-breathed, holy inspired, and therefore utterly and completely true, and because God cannot lie. And so, just a little rabbit trail, maybe a sanctified rabbit trail. If you're wondering or you're not certain, let me be clear. The church on Randall plays, we believe in the inspiration of, of the scriptures. That is that all 66 books of the Old Testament and New Testament are God-breathed and they are profitable for reproof and correction and exhortation that the person of God can be fully equipped. We believe, and I'll be kind of fancy, in the, both the verbal and plenary um, inspiration of scripture. That is all of the words, and I would even go ahead and say even the, the concepts and the words themselves are inspired by God. It is our authority, and because it comes from God, it is sufficient. We do not need any other book. We do not need any other letter. We do not need any other... Now, other men and women have wrote, written great things that we are probably wise to consider. I'm reading a book from... John Owens right now, and it's, it's the mortification of sin. It's an amazing work. And I'm looking at it and going, this is just awesome. And I'm learning much from Mr. Owens. Understand, Mr. Owens is fallible. And as great and classic of a work as that is, he is still a fallible man. So we can learn a lot from him. And we should. We should read um, what men and women have written and spoken. Uh, we should take note of counsels and, and creeds and confessions. Those things are all beneficial to us. They just are not the inspired Word of God. And so they do not get added to the Scripture. The 66 books of the Old and New Testament are sufficient. And hence, because they come from God, they are authoritative. This is what guides us. This is what leads us. I think from what we just looked at, this is Jesus' view of Scripture. That the Scriptures come through, came through the prophets, but did not originate through the, from the prophets. They originated from God Himself. And so I'm going to Jerusalem, and all of the words of the prophets, spoken by the prophets, will be fulfilled. So um, we we begin with this very foundational aspect that God has spoken, God has decreed, and God will bring to fruition everything He has said. So, um, so we can have confidence when we read God's Word that it is God's Word and it is inerrant and it is sufficient. It is authoritative. Alright, so that's the end of my little sanctified rabbit trail. Jesus, so now we have a basic idea of Jesus' understanding or relationship to the Word of God, to the Scriptures. 
And, and then he goes on, and let's, let's deal with this idea of the necessity of Messiah's suffering, the, necess- the necessity of Jesus' suffering. And, and we will note this. It says, so we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written about the Son of Man um, by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. And so when I read that, I ask this question. Who's going to deliver him over to the Gentiles? If he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles, who's going to deliver him over to the Gentiles? Well, the answer is, um, on the surface, fairly simple. Uh, And the answer is, the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, its leaders are going to hand over the Pharisees, Sadducees, the, the, the Jewish leaders, the high priests, they are going to hand over Jesus to the Gentiles. The Jews deliver Jesus over to be killed. understand this. That their acts, their actions were in they were in accord with the eternal plan of God. Listen to Acts chapter 2 verses 22 through 24. This is perhaps the second, maybe the third greatest sermon ever preached. Um, the first greatest sermon would be the Sermon on the Mount. I'd probably put uh, all of that discourse way up there also, maybe number two or tied for number one. This is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And it ranks way up there. One of the greatest sermons ever preached. And this is what Peter tells us. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Law, you killed him through the hands of lawless men, but it fulfilled the decrees of God. Acts chapter 8, 32. Um, did I put that verse up there? Mm, I guess not. So how about if I just turn there? Acts chapter eight thirty-two says this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Notice that. He, speaking of God the Father, who did not, did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Israel stands condemned. The Jews stand condemned for their handing over of the sinless Son of God to be crucified. Make no mistake though, this is God's, God is not caught off guard. And and one of the things that we need to understand, Jesus is not some hapless victim of the whims of man. He is obedient to the plan of God. Why? To secure your salvation and my salvation by bearing our penalty. This was the plan of God. I'm going to make sure that your sins are covered and here's the way it's going to get done. But wait, there's more. He's delivered for death by the Jews, but crucified by the Gentiles. 
Here's the point of that. Everybody's guilty. See, in Jewish thought, there's only two, two, um, two categories of people. You're a Jew or you're a Gentile. You didn't, that, that's, that's just it. Jew or Gentile. Handed over by the Jews to the Gentiles. Everybody stands condemned before a holy God. Nobody gets off the hook. All the world is guilty and hence all the world is in need of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. If you're sitting here today and you have never called upon the name of the Lord, if you've never been forgiven of your sins, you are in need of the atoning sacrifice that Jesus offered that day in Jerusalem. And if you are here today and you are a follower of Christ, it is because Jesus went to Jerusalem and was handed over to the Gentiles and suffered and died on that cross and rose again on the third day. You stand here not because of some merit uh, of, that you have done, by some works that you have done, by some goodness that is inherent within you. You are here today saved. If you're assured of going to heaven, it is because Christ. It's not because you were not guilty. It is because we were all utterly and completely condemned before the Holy One and He sent forth His Son to bear the penalty of our sin. So, none of us can rely upon our merit for salvation. Salvation is secured by Jesus and it is entirely a work of God. Notice this also. So, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. That is, he will be mocked. Jesus not only suffered physically, but he suffered um, shame and ridiculed. He will be mocked. He will be treated shamefully. He will be physically beaten. Psalm chapter 22 is uh, maybe the classic work because remember, Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures. That's what he says. The scriptures need to be fulfilled. I'm going to fulfill the scriptures. And the scriptures say that Messiah is going to be mocked, treated shamefully, and physically beaten. Look at this passage in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. This will be fulfilled because this is the word of God. God has called it to happen and all this for you and for me. Chapter Psalm, I'm sorry, Psalm chapter 22. I won't uh, go through the whole Psalm, but it's the one that begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, I cry out to you. This, these were some of the words of Jesus on the cross. He says, but I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make, their, they make mouths at me. They wag their head. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And so Jesus is going to Jerusalem and he will be mocked and he will be shamefully treated and he will be spit upon. And again, this is no accident. Jesus isn't just some, again, a hapless victim. John Shelby Spong of the Jesus Seminar said that he just got caught up over his head, got caught 
caught up in, in over his head. That Jesus was trying to do something good, but the forces, political forces overcame him and put him to death. Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he fulfilled the scriptures. And part of that was to be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and spurned. And it was no accident. And so the Son of Man will be delivered over to the Gentiles, will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. The necessity of his death and resurrection. Remember, everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophet will be accomplished and he will be killed. I want you to understand something about the death of Christ. That it is a death that has purpose. It is a substitutionary death. It is um, not merely an example. And many people will ascribe to Jesus' Jesus's crucifixion as that of a, a good example. And it is certainly a good example. But if you stop there, you've missed the main component. The main component is that it is substitution, substitutionary. In other words, it is his life for our life. His death for our death. We deserve the death. He didn't. He died for us. It is substitution. He died in our place. Isaiah chapter 53, verses uh, 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I'm going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written by the prophets is going to be fulfilled. Including that. I'm going to die in your place. My apostles, my, my disciples, my friends, you need salvation. You are sep- your sins have separated you from God. You need salvation. I'm the ransom. I'm the, I'm the sacrifice. I'm the atoning sacrifice. It will be fulfilled. God has decreed it from the beginning, from the foundation of the world, from all eternity past. Now's the time we're going up to Jerusalem. It's going to happen. Your redemption draws near. He died in our place. This was the will of God. It was the will of God that he would die in our place. It was, like I said, determined in eternity past. It was revealed to the prophets and carried out in Jerusalem. We need to understand that Jesus' death is a core element of the gospel. We talk about the gospel. Paul gives us the gospel in a nutshell. For I delivered to you that was um, given to me that Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures that he was buried, and that he was raised again according to the scriptures. Jesus died. He just didn't die, but he died for our sins. He died for sins. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. I want you to note the certainty of the, of the sequence of events continues. He will rise. And if you don't mind, I'm going to get... Uh, if you're new here, every once in a while we do a little grammar geek section. And um, most people in the church don't mind it. They kind of like it. Um, 
But I want to talk a little bit, you know, you don't need to, you're going, great, I come to church and I get a grammar lesson. Up till now, the majority of the verbs in, in this passage have been passive. That is, the subject, Jesus, receives the action. The majority of them are passive. This one is not. This one is middle. And in the Greek, a middle voice is that the person is not only both, he's both the recipient and the doer of the action. So we might say in English we call it a reflexive, but anyways, we're not here for grammar lessons. So we might say, I dressed myself, or she nourished herself. This is middle. He will rise. He will raise himself. Jesus is saying, well, right now, all of, the, all of the actions are coming. I, I am the recipient of the actions. But when it comes to rising from the dead, I'm no passive actor in this. I raise myself from the dead. And notice the certainty. It will happen. It will happen. I will raise myself from the dead. Again, no longer a passive recipient of the hands of sinful men. Now, in the sinless Son of God, death cannot hold him, and he will rise from the dead. I, uh, Psalm chapter um, 16, verses 8 through 11. Remember, this needs to fulfill the Scriptures. In Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, we see Jesus doing that very thing. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to shield or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forever. And the apostles, the inspired authors of scripture understood this passage of, death, uh, of text to refer to Jesus Christ, that he will not stay dead. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to, be suffer, I'm going to suffer at the hands of sinful men. They will kill me and I will rise. The resurrection proves that Jesus was who he said he was. Death could not hold him because death is the result of sin. And Jesus was sinless, and death therefore had no authority, no hold on him. He was the sinless and is the sinless Lamb of God, and therefore not subject to the power of death. I also want you to note something from Ephesians that I think is just absolutely amazing. In Ephesians chapter 1, that the power of Christ's resurrection is the power that brought us to life. We were dead in sin, and we are now alive together with him. How? By resurrection power. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has 
called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. I want you to understand what is the power, the resurrecting power that is at work in you. This does not mean that we can just go about jumping off of cliffs or do well and doing whatever we want. I want you to know that resurrection power is much more powerful than that. It raises dead men to life. It gave you life when you were dead in your sins and you did not love God, did not seek God. Did, you, were, you were far from God and you didn't even know you were far from God. You didn't even know you were a dead man. The resurrection power of Christ raises that kind of person from the dead. And then when you die, when this physical body goes into the ground and it ceases to exist, resurrection power will raise you again. And here's the even better part. On the last day, at the last trumpet, when Christ comes again, resurrecting power will raise you to new life and you will have a resurrected, glorified body like Jesus Christ and you will dwell and live to it forever with him. That's resurrection power. This has to happen. This, has to, this will happen. God has said so. We've established the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. It will happen. Part of it has already happened, but you can be certain of the next part. You can be certain that if you breathe your last breath today, that you will be in the presence of the Lord. And when He comes again, your body will be resurrected and you will have a glorious new resurrected body. And we will live and dwell forever with him. And so all, and I'm thinking of this power because, you know, we're, we live in a culture of, you know, conserving energy and trying to find more energy. And I was just thinking of all the sources of natural energy. Solar power, coal, tidal power, hydrological power, nuclear power, splitting atoms, fusing atoms. All of them cannot raise a dead man back to life. None of them can raise a person who is lost and dead in their sins. Cannot all of the power in the world. Get all the shale you can get. Get all of the oil. Get all of the nuclear energy. Get the power of the sun. And it will not raise a dead man to life. But the resurrection power of Jesus Christ will bring a spiritually dead person to life. And make them alive to God and will raise you up on the last day so that you will live together forever with him. Yeah. This will happen. This will happen. It takes resurrection power to make a person who is a child of wrath by nature a child of God. This has to happen. And it will happen. And it has happened. Well, those are the words in red. Those are the words of Christ. And then we have this little narrative here. But they, that is the, the, the disciples, the twelve, but they, didn't, they understood none of these things. And then it says this, this saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. They did not understand these things. As I said in my introduction, it's not so much that they did not grasp the words and the syntax and, and all of that. What they did not understand was how does, how does the Messiah die, especially by crucifixion? How does the Messiah die? How can Messiah suffer? 
You see, Jesus had just revealed the plan of God, God's ordained plan, but it did not fit with their understanding until after the resurrection. He dies. They don't get it. They just don't get it. It was hidden from them. And and perhaps we're going to see this so clearly in Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus. And and it talks about these these two disciples who are walking along, leaving Jerusalem and going to Emmaus. And and another traveler joins them. And he says, why are you so sad? He goes, haven't you heard of what's happened in Jerusalem? How Jesus, a man mighty in deeds, we thought he was the Messiah. But they put him to death. We saw him die. He's in, that's what happened. Now we've heard some rumor that somebody said he's alive again, but come on, dead people don't come back to life. Everybody knows that. And we thought that perhaps maybe he was the Messiah. But Messiahs don't die on crosses. They don't suffer at the hands of sinful men. They're victorious. And we were hoping. And then in verses 44 through 49, first of all, Jesus begins to teach them and say, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart. Don't you know that the Messiah had to fulfill all the scriptures and that all the law and the prophets spoke about him? Don't you realize that? And I love verse 31. And their eyes were open and they recognized him. Then look at verses 44 through 49. Then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I want you to understand even knowledge of God is a gift of God's grace. If you know God, it is by God's grace. It is a gift of God. If you understand the scriptures, if you understand these things, it is not because you are so smart or so wise, or so in, intelligent. And I'm not saying that you can't understand the Word. I, I understand. You can understand, like I said, you can understand the, what the word meanings and the syntax. I got um, one of my former professors. He goes to all of these big academic things. He's super, super bright, and he writes all these papers and books and stuff like that, and he goes to these highfalutin academic conferences um, on Scripture and presents his papers and his research and all this stuff, and then it's peer-reviewed and criticized and critiqued and all these things. And, and I remember him saying one time, he's going, I was at this particular meeting, and he's going, all of these brilliant, brilliant Bible scholars are there. He says, you know what? I think maybe there's three of us who are actually Christians. In other words, there's a whole lot of people who know the Bible really, really, really well. They know the words. They understand the syntax. They can read it in multiple languages. They, un- they know God's word, but their eyes are shut. It is, the meaning is hidden from them. It will take a gift of God's grace to open their minds to the scriptures to see what it is they've been studying really has to do with eternal life. They they understand the words. They understand how sentences are put together. They understand the historical components, but it has not brought new life to them. Jesus says, and he opened and he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. One of my favorite passages of text is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 2 
shares, helps us understand that even knowledge of God and his plan is a gift of grace. And I won't go through it all, but it's, it's, a, it's an amazing passage of text. And it, and it goes like this. Basically, it says, there's a wisdom of this world, but it's foolish. And there's a wisdom of God. And the wisdom of God is foolishness to men. Because if they had wisdom of God, they would not have killed the king of glory. And then he says, what eye has not seen and ear has not heard and not has not even entered into the hearts of man, all that God has planned for them. And then too often we stop there. We say, oh, well, God has these amazing things that we can't even comprehend planned for us. That's not what it says. It says, what eye has not seen and ear has not heard and was not, has not even entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for them. These things, what things? The things that eye has not seen and ear has not heard, the things that have not entered into the heart of man. These things God has revealed to us by his spirit. For God has revealed them for us. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person? I don't know what you're thinking. You know what you're thinking. Who knows the mind of God? The Spirit of God. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. You understand the words of God because God has given you his spirit and the spirit of God understands the things of God. And you now have the spirit. If you belong to Christ, it is because he has opened your eyes and put his spirit in you. And now you understand the things of God. That we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truth to those who are spiritual. Why? Because a natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God. They are folly to him and he is not even able to understand them. But the spiritual person judges all things. And he who has understand. He who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. What an amazing passage of text. We can't understand the things of God, but the Spirit understands the things of God and we have the Spirit of God. He has opened our minds by his grace, by his mercies. If you're here today and you understand, even in an elementary way, I'm not even, you do not need to be an academic. I'm just simply saying, you, you read or heard the gospel story that God, that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, was buried and raised again, and you say, I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, and I believe in my heart that Christ raised him from the dead, you do not need to be an academic. I have a good friend who has Down syndrome, and he will believe that, and I believe with my entire being that he is filled with the Spirit and on his way to heaven. His intellect, his IQ, not very high. But he understands the Spirit of God because the Spirit has entered into him and filled his mind with the truth of God. Meanwhile, some genius academic is off in a conference and on his way to hell. He doesn't understand the Spirit of God. So he opens our eyes to see our need for him. And his opening of our eyes is by his grace. These men were walking on the road to Emmaus and they just didn't understand it. It wasn't until Jesus opened their minds to understand what was spoken that they said, oh, I get it now. Now I get everything you were talking about that day. That makes perfect sense to me now. And you read that um, oftentimes in John. John goes on and says, um, 
And the disciples didn't understand this until after the resurrection. After Jesus opened their hearts and their minds by his grace. Not by their intellect. By, the, by his grace. So Jesus says that we are to come to him. Every one of you who are weak and heavy laden. And he will give you rest. Proverbs tells us that we are to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not into our own understanding. And so I'm going to appeal to you today to trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not into your own understanding. Your understanding is fine, but it will not bring salvation to you. You understand, I am asking and pleading with you that if God is opening your eyes and opening your heart to repent of your sin and call upon Him and believe in Him and believe in your heart that Christ raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Um, It's not a compliment. I know we, we got into syntax and, and grammar and all kinds of crazy. You do not need to know those things to understand the truths of Scripture. I just hope those things maybe gave a little bit of high definition or color. But you do not need to be a grammarian to be saved. You need to hear that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again from the dead, that he died for your sins. Christ died for sins, your sins. He was buried, that he rose again from the dead. So I'm just going to call you on you today that if, if God has opened your eyes to that truth, today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Do not wait. All right? This is the time that God has ordained for you to come and confess your sins, call upon his name, and you will be saved. My wife and I, Simone and I, will be sitting up front here. You can come to us up during the, so- the final song. Oh, wait. We're going to do, we've got to do Lord's Supper. Gosh, I was just rambling, thinking I had all kinds of time. But I'm just thinking, what is a more appropriate thing to do than...